Good morning, Mac. We have the shirt coming up this morning to give us announcements. I knew I forgot. <laughs> I knew I forgot. It. You knew it. Good morning, Joe. Sure. See, I was just making sure who listened to the announcements last week, and I had several people go, "Oh, I forgot." It's all right. Oh, you missed the announcements? Okay, that's all right. Um, it's Hawaiian shirt day. Next week is Hirachi sandals. So, just for you. You missed the 60s. Uh, let's see. <laughs> the men's breakfast is coming up this Saturday morning, 7.30. If you want to come and eat with us, if you want to come and fellowship while we make the breakfast, 6.30. So that's a great time of fellowship and uh, just getting together and talking and hanging out. So it's really good. Pastor usually makes the pancakes, and he makes some incredible pancakes. So uh, look forward to that. Uh, mark your calendars for this year's missions conference. It's happening March 30th through April 3rd. And this year, uh, Jeter and Laura Livingston will be sharing their experiences from their work in the Ivory Coast. And uh, check out the insert in your bulletin for more information. Individuals are needed to help run the recording um, equipment here on Sunday mornings. If you're interested in helping, please contact Adam Riley. Uh, he's the one who's in charge of uh, putting people in place. So it's good. It's a good ministry. Also, you get to watch from the booth. All right. <laughs> Um, also, uh, the dates for the Vacation Bible School have been set, and that is going to be from June 13th to the 17th, and it's from 5.30 to 8 o'clock, and uh, we are going to need some gifted actors to help in the skits, and you need to talk to uh, the children's ministry about that, Rachel Riley or Rachel LaRue, so if you can contact them. And one special announcement. They're right after the service today, it's kind of sad. We're having a couple leave, a family leave from our from our church, and that would be after many years of fellowship at Mac. The Whaley's family will soon begin their new journey in Richmond, Kentucky. Uh, so please join us immediately after the service for honoring the Whaley's and their family friendship and relationships with us. So that'll be right following the service. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Uh, if y'all please stand, we're going to spend some time worshiping uh, our God and Savior. Yeah, I'm going to say pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. We just want to lift your name. You are, um, you are glorious. You are so worthy of every single ounce of praise that we can give you this morning. So uh, we just, again, we lift you up. We uh, put, we put ourselves at the foot of your altar, God, and um, um, we just give give our our this moment to you, God. We want to give every moment of our life, God, but we want to focus specifically on, on you this moment, God. We love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.
to cry, not to cry out. Take the earth from the ground, from the ground. Rescue souls from the darkness around. Since the battle of a time, of a time now. We can't afford not to cry, not to cry out. Take the earth from the ground, from the ground. Rescue souls from the darkness around. Oh, Jack. 
tragic, mysterious dream On that beautiful, scandalous night You and me were atoned by His blood And forever watches by On that beautiful, scandalous night Go on up to the mountain of mercy to the crimson perpetual tide And kneel down by the shore Be thirsty no more wonder and be purified Go wonder and be purified Just take your 
have a real quick announcement that I want to, uh, to make. Um, when a, a man feels or senses a call to full-time ministry, um, it is not a step that is ever taken lightly. And uh, when that man decides he wants to serve with the Christian Missionary Alliance, the Christian Missionary Alliance does not take that decision lightly. And uh, upon Deciding to come into the Alliance as a pastor, um, every pastor goes under a licensing uh, interview. Uh, Usually you fill out a doctrinal questionnaire and an application and you send that to a district superintendent and then they call you in and they, for about two hours, grill you uh, over your doctrinal questionnaire, what you believe, what you understand uh, uh, things to be, how you uh, understand different aspects of doctrine and theology. And, and if you pass that, you are licensed with the Christian Missionary Alliance, and that gives you the right to perform weddings and things of that nature. And they usually then place you into a pastoral position within a church. And then you start what's called an ordination process. And the ordination process within the alliance, and really it is ordination is just a confirmation. It's the denomination's way to confirm God's call upon your life and your decision to serve within the denomination. It's a minimum of a two-year process. There are books to be read, book reports to be written, there are positional papers to be written, there are more interviews, there are more meetings, there are more uh, supervision and, and, uh, and uh, follow-up and things like that. Uh, a number of years ago, Grant stepped into that process and went through the licensing and entered into the ordination, uh, ordination process. Now, it was a little longer than two years, which is normal. Um, I know guys that have gone 10 and 12 years to complete the process. Uh, but at the end of the process, you, need to, you have to take a written exam. And uh, that written exam, they give you 24 hours to complete it, and the average is 9 to 10 hours to complete the written exam. There are 10 essay questions, 12 essay questions, number of multiple choice, true and false and whatnot. You send that off. It's not graded, but then they look over it, and then they call you into an oral exam. And most of the oral exams are two to three hours sitting in front of a committee, uh, licensing and ordination committee. A couple weeks ago, Grant took the written exam. 
and you don't know what, how you do on it until you show up at the oral exam. Uh, on Thursday, Grant drove up to, uh, was it Thursday? Thursday, Grant drove up to Chicago for his oral exam, and I am pleased to announce that he passed. So it's a long process. Um, it is a confirming process, and uh, everything we knew about Grant, they've now confirmed that it is true. Um, the only catch is now you have to refer to him as Reverend. So uh, you can do that. But uh, I just wanted to announce and, and, and let you know, congratulate Grant at some point today. It is a huge process, a huge step uh, in ministry within the Alliance uh, to have the, the denomination confirm uh, your call. Uh, into full-time ministry. So with that, children, you are dismissed. Junior, senior high as well can go with Grant. And uh, uh, we want to continue worship uh, through prayer and then looking into uh, God's Word this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We have several that uh, are in need of prayer this morning, and uh, so I just ask that you would join me. Father, the <clears throat> we do come before you this morning as our ruler and king, that you are the king of kings, lord of lords. Father, all authority is yours. All authority in heaven and on earth, and you have passed that on to Jesus Father, our Savior, we are thankful that you sent your Son, your only Son, to take upon the sins of the earth, to take upon the sins of, of all mankind, to pay that penalty for us on the cross. Father, we're reminded this morning of the extent to which Jesus went, the suffering that he went through, on our behalf, Father, that we might have life and have it to the full. Father, we are thankful this morning that you, in your desire to reconcile all people to yourself, have chosen to work through us, your church, your followers, your believers. Father, you place calls on, on people's lives that you, you've given us direction. And Father, we thank you for the call you put on Grant's life and the process of, of confirming that call over these last few years. Father, we just pray, pray, continue to pray a blessing upon him and his ministry. Uh, among us, among our junior and senior high, Lord, that you would just uh, give him a, a clear vision, give him clear understanding of what you want to accomplish in the lives of our teens. Father, in that we pray for Tisha, his wife, as well. Lord, we pray for her, that you would touch her physically. Father, as she's even this morning in the hospital with pneumonia, that, Lord, you would touch her and clear that. All the other issues that she faces, Father, that you have been so faithful to her. We just pray a continued touch upon her. Father, we stand with, with David this morning and, and his wife Gloria and ask that you would touch her. Father, again, a, a battle with pneumonia that has put her back in the hospital and 
trouble breathing. Father, she just needs your touch. She, she needs you to clear those lungs. Father, we need, she needs you to heal. Father, there are many that are suffering physically. We pray your healing touch. Father, we, we pray that you would touch us this morning through your word, through the truth that is before us. Father, that we would respond to the truth, that we would respond positively to the truth. Father, you would open our hearts and open our minds to what you have to say to each one of us. Father, we would draw closer to you. Father, we would continue to be able to be used by you to, to reach those around us. Father, call us out this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> How many of you are decision makers? You actually enjoy making decisions. Okay? You, you, you're good at it. You, you, uh, you don't. Now, some, some, how many of you hate decisions? I don't want to have to make a decision. I'd just soon someone tell me, make the decision for me. Um, I don't mind making a decision. Um, I, sometimes I, I think making a wrong decision sometimes is better than just sitting and doing nothing and making no decision. At least you can direct, you can redirect the course at some point if you just get moving. Um, but we make decisions every day. <coughs> the first decision you make is whether to get out of bed or not. Now you may say, oh, but I don't have that choice. I don't have that decision. Um, I have to get out of bed. No, you, you could choose to stay in bed. You could choose to do nothing that day. So we make decisions every day. Now some decisions are easy to make because they really don't have any long-term effect. Maybe you didn't really think too hard and long about what to wear this morning. I know some of you didn't. I, I know Joe Trotty didn't. <laughs> <laughs> or he thought all week about it. Yeah, that, he didn't confer with his wife either. Um, some decisions, however, carry major weight. Uh, you know, we, we've got teenagers and, and uh, you know, young adults who are deciding what what does the next forty, fifty, sixty years of my life look like. You know, should I get married? If I get married to whom? What career should I enter into? Where am I going to live? Do I have kids, not have kids? How many kids? Decisions can be hard if you don't have all the facts. If you don't have all the, all the truth that's going to help you make that decision. Decisions can be hard if you, if you have too many choices. Sometimes you just, can someone just narrow it down to one or two choices? Sometimes you just have too many choices. We, we chuckled at this. Uh, elders were, were laughing about this on Friday. We meet for lunch, or we meet for breakfast every week. Uh, and Friday we were meeting at Eva's, and we were joking about how <clears throat> there's so many choices in the menu. Have you ever sat to a menu and you start just flipping through pages and you're like, I can't decide what it is I want to eat. And so we always look at the menu, we always flip through it, and then one of us always orders oatmeal with raisins and coffee. Another one always orders the number eight, which is an omelet, with sausage, orange juice, and white toast. 
Another one always orders the number eight omelet with bacon, whole wheat toast, and coffee. And another one always orders the number 10, which is one egg, always gets it scrambled, always gets whole wheat toast with bacon and apple juice. Now we're presented with a menu, but there's so many choices, we always revert back to the old comfortable. The thing we always, you look at it, but we always go back to to what it is. Decisions are not always easy. Some decisions are, are hard to make when you know it's going to greatly affect another person's life. I've been summoned to jury duty three times in my life. Selected twice. And the third time the case was settled out of court before the jury was act, before the selection was actually completed. I love jury duty. I don't know why. I like the process. I guess I've seen enough cop shows and, and law shows and I, I just want to be a part of that. Well, this case that we were on It was a traffic accident where a driver was injured. And she had suffered back injuries. And for two days, both sides presented the facts as they believed them to be. And at the end of those two days, all of the facts were then turned over to the jury. And we went back and met in the room. And we were to decide the outcome. We were to decide what was going to happen with this girl that was a victim of a car accident. Not her fault. Someone hit her. And they were asking for hundreds of thousands of dollars for a back injury that she sustained in this car accident. Our struggle was in the decision of whether the injuries were from this accident or not. Because there were certain facts brought up in the case that she may have had a pre-existing back problem. We didn't know what to do. This should have been an easy, open-shut case. Yes, she was hurt. No fault of her own. The insurance company of the other driver was going to have to pay. And and she brought in all the things that she was going to have to do. missed work. She wasn't going to be able to work anymore. and, And all of these things that should have been really easy. But there was something that nagged every one of us. And we deliberated all morning. And we were going into the afternoon. And we couldn't put our finger on it. And one guy finally started charting it all out. Everything that everyone had said. And it suddenly all made sense. And we all came to the decision that, you know what? She had been hurt before. That this accident had not caused her problems. And while we came back and we, we, uh, we, we decided in favor of her, but we only decided in favor of the tune of $75,000, to which the insurance company lawyers came up and thanked us. Because they didn't feel they could share everything that they knew. And, and it's not easy to make decisions when you may or may not have all of the facts. And when you know the decision you're going to make is going to have a long-term effect on another individual. This morning we're going to take a look at a man who had a difficult time making a decision. I don't know if you realize, but we're only four weeks away from Easter. And so while we've finished up Galatians, we're going to kind of begin walking through this Easter story. We're going to look at different individuals uh, along the way that interacted with with Jesus or had some contact with Jesus um, throughout this last week of his life. And the one that we're going to look at this morning is a man named Pilate. And he had the decision of what to do with Jesus. 
That's a question we all have to answer. What am I going to do with Jesus? What are the facts that I need to know? What is the truth that I need to to understand? And then what am I going to do with Jesus? The setting is Jerusalem around 33 AD. Israel is officially under Roman rule. They officially came under the part of the Roman Empire and they were divided into provinces. And Rome was a culture that valued wealth, prestige, and power. Everyone wanted it. Everyone wanted wealth. Everyone wanted some sort of prestige. Everyone wanted power. And in dealing with the Jewish people, they found it best to to choose Jews to serve Rome in high authority, in high positions. And so they would find Jewish people that they could put into a high position to help rule uh, Israel, to help rule the province of Judea and Syria and those, and those places where, where the Hebrews lived. And what the Rome would do is that they would find these Jewish leaders and they would offer them wealth, prestige, and power. And feed to that, that human nature, that, that sin nature that we've talked about. Now most of these positions were corrupted. And, and because of what they promised, because of what they were, they were giving them. And it seemed like this Jewish person that was given the authority always ruled in favor of Rome. Because they knew where the power was coming from. They knew where the prestige, they knew where the wealth was coming from. The Herods were such a person. The Herods were given such authority uh, kind of as an, an exec, an, as, as an executive branch of Rome. They were overseeing uh, what was going on. But under Herod was the religious leaders. And, and they still carried a lot of authority within the nation of Israel through the, the temple and all of the ritual, the religious rituals and rites that they performed. And so underneath Herod, you had the high priest. He was kind of the executive branch, but was family owned and operated. Uh, otherwise, in order to the high priest, his son was going to be the next high priest. And there was only one high priest that served at any given time. Except now, and we'll, we'll kind of begin to uncover this as over the next few weeks. And the high priest also worked with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of the Supreme Court. There were 12 to 70 men that sat on the Sanhedrin, and they declared all, they did all of the judicial uh, legal things. That if, if someone had to go to a court, they, they appeared before the Sanhedrin. And then there were the Sadducees. These were the more conservative bunch that, that held only to the law of Moses. They didn't hold to the, the prophets. They didn't hold to the Psalms. They held just to that, the law of Moses. The first five books is what they held to. And they worked the temple. And they also carried out the uh, kind of the political court with Rome. And so they had some power and authority that was given to them. And then we have the Pharisees. They acted as more the common lawyers. Okay, they were the ones that uh, they represented the common man. They, they expanded the understanding of the law. They went beyond the, the Pentateuch. They went beyond the law of Moses. They even went beyond the prophets. And they began writing a number of laws that would help the common man live out the laws as God gave them. I think they wrote over six or seven hundred laws. Uh, kind of the thing about keeping the Sabbath day holy. That was the law of God. That was the, the law that, that God gave Moses, one of the Ten Commandments. Well, they began to define for 
the common man what that meant. And that meant you couldn't work. That meant you couldn't leave your house. That meant you couldn't do any, any kind of, of physical activity. And even to the point of if you couldn't leave your house, they, they found loopholes and they, they created things where, well, if they took their sandal off and they threw their sandal, that constituted their property so they could at least walk to where their sandal was. And then they could take it and they could throw it again and they could walk to where it was again. So they, could, they found ways to get around these man-made pharisaical laws. And we use that term today, talking about legalism and all the man-made laws that maybe we create in order to, to function as a church. We talked about that through Galatians, that it's actually a dangerous place to be, to fall down that, that cavern of legalism and, and, and where we focus totally on just the law and not, not relationship, not forgiveness. These groups were given authority within the Jewish community. And most disputes were handled in these courts. That only if a dispute got really big, really bad, did it ever reach the Roman authority. That most of the things within Jewish law could be handled through the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin and and the high priest. Now if anyone was found worthy of the death penalty, because there were some laws that the Jews had that required the death penalty, they had to appeal to the higher court. The Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they did not have the authority from Rome to execute anyone. Now Jesus had become a threat to the religious leaders. Throughout his three and a half years of ministry, his public ministry, his preaching, his teaching, his his healing, his miracles, suddenly became a threat to the Pharisees, to the elders, to the scribes, to the Sadducees, to the high priest. He was gaining a large following and people were turning away from the temple to follow Jesus. And suddenly all of their power and their authority and their prestige and their wealth was now being threatened by this one man. Throughout the Gospels, we can read of of confrontation after confrontation with the Pharisees and and the other religious leaders that even Herod was a little worried when Jesus was born. Remember he said that that when the wise men went to Herod to find out where this new baby was born, where this king of the Jews was to be born, Herod immediately went into a little shock. And he said, a king, I'm the king. What do you mean a king has been born? And so he sent them on their way, but then he began looking for this baby to try to kill it because it was going to be a threat to him. And if you remember, he killed all the boys two years and younger. So these Sadducees, these Pharisees, these elders, religious leaders, they began to plot ways to remove Jesus, remove the threat. They could handle some of the miracles. They could handle some of the teachings. But following the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, they had had enough. That was too much. They could not bring the dead back to life. They could perform some of the miracles. They could see some of the things happen. But when Jesus, after Lazarus had been in in the tomb for three days, brought him back out alive, that was too much. John chapter 11 says, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, What are we going to do since this man does many signs? 
If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. We can't have that. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. They said, if the people follow Jesus, if they all start to believe in him, we're going to lose what Rome has given us. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our prestige. We're going to lose our wealth. We're going to lose our authority. We can't do that. What must we do? They were afraid of, of losing everything that they had. And so they said from that day on, they plotted to kill him. But in order to kill him, they were going to need the help from Rome. Enter Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the fifth Roman governor of the Judean province. And because of the Jewish culture, this area was, was always a threat of rebellion to Rome. There was always these zealots, always these, these revolutionaries that would rise up and try to, to pull Israel away from, to pull the nation back away from Rome's authority and, and, and rule. They sometimes put people in the governorship of Judea who had a strong backbone, who had a strong arm, who would rule with an iron fist. And if you succeeded there, there was good opportunity or good possibility that you would be promoted and given a, a little bit better, better province to rule. And I think that's what Pilate was hoping for. He would take on the, the tough Judean province, rule with an iron fist, and then hopefully get a better place to kind of finish out his career. It was a corrupt system from top to bottom. And after, after putting Jesus through, through the mockery of, the, of their own courts, after, after arresting him and, and on trumped-up charges, the, the Sanhedrin, putting him through the, the mockery of, of a trial, he was found guilty of blasphemy for his claims of being the Messiah, which were true. When he said he was the Son of God... And in Jewish law, this carried the death penalty. This was caused to, to have somebody stoned or executed or, or killed. But they weren't sure if blasphemy to our God would stand under Pilate in a Roman court. Because that was a religious matter, not a civil matter. And so they had to come up with other charges. They had to come up with something that Pilate would, would grab a hold of. And so they added false witnesses. And they added inciting a riot. They added claiming to be the Messiah or a king, they explained that as. And that he denied paying taxes to Caesar. Okay, now this was going to step into hurting Rome if this man is saying, do not pay taxes to Caesar. Now, did Jesus ever say that? What, in fact, did he say about paying taxes to Caesar? Render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. Now, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, didn't like that statement. Because he was saying, yeah, give to Caesar, give to Rome what is Rome, and give to God's what is God's. Now, what did Rome get? Rome got a tax, pay the tax. What did God get? Everything else. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like the idea that God got everything else, that all of our life needs to go to God. Yeah, give, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to the government, give to Rome what is Rome's, what is rightfully theirs. But then everything else is God's. Your life is God's. 
And so they had all these trumped up charges. And after putting them through his own, their own mockery of a trial, they now were ready to bring him before Pilate. And when brought before Pilate, Pilate asked a series of questions to get to the truth, to, to get to the understanding, to get to the facts. So turn with me to John chapter 18. As Jesus is, is brought into uh, to the praetorium, to, to, to uh, Pilate's house, where he was living in, in Jerusalem at the time. John chapter 18, verse 28. says, Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas's house, and Caiaphas was the, the high priest at that time, and, and that was where they, they first ran him through the mockery of the trial. And then to the, they took him from took Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. Then Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. So they didn't answer his question. So Pilate told them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, signifying the kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? First question that he asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Now this is, every gospel writer tells of this line of questioning, this, this particular question. They, they differ on, on the rest of the story a little bit, but this is one that every one of them says Pilate asked him first. Are you the king of the Jews? It's interesting that the religious leaders would not enter Pilate's house. That they waited outside and Pilate came out to them. Do you know why that is? Because it was against their law to enter the house of a Gentile. That if you entered the house of a non-Jew, you were declared unclean and must go through a ceremonial cleansing. So if they had entered the house, the ceremonial cleansing would not have been done in time for them to have taken the Passover. They didn't want to miss the Passover, their law. And so they waited outside and made Pilate come to them. They had no problem Condemning an innocent man to death to save their power, wealth, and prestige. But they had a problem stepping into a Gentile's house. Are they really wanting truth? Are they really wanting the facts? Are they really wanting to know who Jesus is? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. What do we do with Jesus? How far are we willing to go? He's brought to Pilate, and Pilate starts the questioning with, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, being a king was the only real threat to Pilate. The only real threat to Rome. And so Jesus' answer to this was going to be vastly important to Pilate and what he would do next. Pilate would have expected a negative response. He would have expected a lot of, No, 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 I'm not a king, I'm not a king. Because he knew that if, if anyone admitted to being a king, he was going to die. Because Rome wouldn't put up with a rival. Rome wouldn't put up with a threat. He didn't look like a king. He wasn't dressed like a king. He didn't have a lot of followers 
following him around like a king. And as most times, Jesus answers Pilate's question with a question. He didn't even act like someone who's fearful of death right now. Of being brought before the governor, Rome's spokesperson. Most people, when they're brought to that, they are shivering, they are shaking, they are, they're doing anything they can to prove their innocence. And Jesus, instead of answering his question outright with a no that Pilate expected, Jesus says, are you asking this on your own? Or have others told you about me? Now, if I said that, I'm sure Jesus didn't say it in the same tone I would say it. I would say it somewhat defiantly. Jesus probably just said it matter-of-factly. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you asking this on your own? Or because someone told you who I was? Or told you about me? This is key for us today. Jesus is pushing Pilate to come to his own decision. His own conclusion about who Jesus is. Did you come to this idea of me being a king on your own? Did you come by your own understanding of, of Jewish prophecy, of, of witnessing by any of the actions of, of what I've taken over the last three years? Because this isn't the first time Pilate's heard of Jesus. Jesus has been traveling all around the area. Pilate's known for the area. He's the governor of the area. He has to know what's going on. He would have heard of Jesus before. And Jesus is saying, are you asking me that question because you want to know? Because you want to have clarified what you've thought about me, what you've seen, what you've heard? Or has someone told you about me? Are you Rome's representative fearing my kingship? Or are you a puppet in my accuser's hand? The question is to us this morning. Do you believe in Jesus as Messiah, as Savior on your own? Because you personally have experienced the forgiveness of sin? Because you've personally experienced the grace and the mercy for yourself? Because you've personally come to Him out of your own personal need? Or because someone simply told you? Because you read it in a book? That personal faith is the only right answer? That personal interaction, that I've come to this understanding on my own? I've owned it. I'm owning my need for the king of the Jews. I'm owning my, my submission to him as king. It's going to take a personal crisis on our part to rightly come before the king, to lightly, rightly seek out his authority, Christ's authority, so Jesus was right in asking, are you here for yourself? To find out the truth of who I am? Or because someone told you you needed to ask these questions or do this thing? Pilate responds in verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. Your accusers have told me about you. I'm not here because I'm a Jew. I'm not here because I'm a believer. I'm not here because I care who you are. I have a knowledge about you based on their story. I have no personal conviction. 
Where are we this morning? Do we have a knowledge about Jesus with no personal conviction? Pilate says, what have you done? What, what, what is it that, why are you standing here before me? Now Matthew interjects a slightly different question at this point in the interaction. Matthew chapter 27, then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? Jesus is saying, you know, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, are you asking this because you want to know or because someone told you? And Pilate says, am I a Jew? I'm here because someone told me. What is it that you've done? And and in the back, I I can only picture that there are still accusations. There are still testimonies. There's still an outcry from, from the Sadducees and the religious leaders. And they're still yelling what the accusations are. And Pilate says, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? Don't you hear the world's opinion of you? Don't you see what the world thinks of Jesus? Of who you are? That all of your truth claims are false? That they're wanting to put you to death? See, the Jews were being led astray by their own scripture. By their own truth. Jesus is is greatly misunderstood. And that's not a whole lot different than today, correct? What is the public opinion of Jesus right now? What are the accusations about Christ? Christianity is greatly misunderstood. It doesn't fit well in the world of political correctness and moral relativism and do your own thing. We live in a world that strives for wealth, power, and prestige. No different than 33 AD. Corrupt in many levels. Politically, socially, and religiously corrupt. And with the opportunities to set things right... For Jesus to to lay claim to everything that was his. To set the world straight. John is the only one that shares that he said anything. See, Pilate is used to those being accused of such crimes screaming for mercy. Pleading their innocence. But Jesus does not address the accusations. Jesus is not concerned about the false accusations. Jesus is not concerned about the the false testimony. Jesus is not concerned about public opinion. Because Jesus knows that truth will always win out in the long run. And John says that Jesus looks at Pilate and he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, if my kingdom was like your kingdom, my servants would fight the way your servants fight. So that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. Pilate says, you are a king then. You say that I'm a king. I was born for this. And I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate goes back to the original question. And all of the gospel writers give this response in in one form or another. You say that I'm a king. 
which really is saying, yes, it is as you say. You are a king then. Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. But my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom doesn't operate the way your kingdom operates. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. My kingdom does not fight like an earthly kingdom. It does not operate by wealth, power, and prestige. Jesus was not concerned about the popular vote, the crowds liking him or agreeing with him. His kingdom is not dependent upon man's opinion of it. Now, if Pilate were truly listening, he might have caught that Jesus is saying, My kingdom is more powerful than your kingdom. But Pilate missed it. Pilate thought he was probably just a crazy guy, like so many of the rebellious zealots were. In fact, he tells Pilate later in, the, in, the, in this continued trial, this continued interaction, when Pilate says, don't you know who I am? He's been asking, are you the king of the Jews? Do you know what your accuser is saying? Where are you from? He's asking Jesus all these, these questions. And then when Jesus doesn't say anything at one point, he said all he can. This is my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate says, don't you know who I am? Do you not know the power that I have over you? Do you not know that I hold your life in my hand? That I at my word could have you put to death? Do you not care to speak to me? And what did Jesus say? You don't have any authority but what wasn't given to you by my Father in heaven. See, he wasn't, Jesus wasn't concerned about public opinion. Jesus knew the truth. Jesus knew where the power lay. Jesus knew where the authority really was for this world. That the kingdom of God can get along without the powers of this world, but the kingdoms of this world cannot get along without the power of God. Every person who denies the power of God will fail. Every family who denies the power of God will fail. Every country, every government, every stronghold that denies the power of God will fail. Jesus wasn't concerned about public opinion. Christ's resurrection is proof that what Jesus told Pilate is true. That the resurrection is the difference between an earthly power and a heavenly power. That Christ's followers will not concern themselves with earthly wealth, power, and prestige. That, that we will not fight the way the world fights. That we will, live by this, we will not live by the same values and principles that the world lives by. That we will listen to Jesus' voice. Because everyone who is of the truth... Listens to my voice, Jesus says. Jesus didn't need to answer those accusations. He will only testify to what is true. The truth of the heavenly kingdom, the truth of the fallenness of man, the truth of the grace and forgiveness of God, the, the eternal separation of the two kingdoms. And when Jesus says everyone 
who follows the truth listens to my voice, what does Pilate say? What is truth? What is truth? Rome was a society of truth seekers, philosophers. Pilate was no doubt jaded by all of the truth claims that were out there. That every philosopher standing on the street corner had some truth claim. Something that he was claiming, this is the truth. And it got to the point to where they were all eventually contradicting one another and they were saying nothing is true. What is truth? And here, Jesus, you're just another truth claimer. But here he stood right in front of the way, the truth, and the life. And he walked away. Pilate was so close to doing the right thing, looking for a way to let Jesus go. He even struggled with it. This was the hard part of his decision. That he felt in his heart that there really was nothing to condemn this man. Even his wife warned him, don't have anything to do with this man. So close to doing the right thing that Jesus said, if you really want to know the truth, listen to my voice. Listen to what I'm telling you. Pilate was not really interested in the truth. Pilate was only interested in maintaining his wealth, power, and prestige. Power, he was only interested in maintaining his, where he stood in society. His comfortableness. And this, this really is the question of our, of our postmodern culture. What is truth? Since Adam and Eve and the serpent interacted in the garden, man has been searching for truth. A way to describe reality. A way to describe what really is. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why there is even good and bad and what makes something good? We live in a culture where the battle between truth and lie has been elevated to new heights. Where the lie is, believing, is, is being believed more and more and more. Where the lie is gaining power. Where the lie seems to be winning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, When a community of order built on lies and injustice is confronted by a community of peace, a battle must ensue. We're in a battle. We're in a battle of truth. We're in a battle of truth versus a lie. The questions that Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Do you know what they're saying about you? Do you know what the public opinion of Jesus is? What is truth? Those are all questions we have to ask ourselves. Those are all questions we have to come to decisions on. Truth is that Jesus brings a kingdom of peace. A reconciliation of God and man. A peace that is established in forgiveness. Truth that salvation comes from no one else. No other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but through Him. Pilate would never find truth. Because even though it was standing right in front of him, he refused to see it. Blinded by his... Wealth, power, prestige, his place. Pilate was afraid that believing the truth, releasing Jesus, he was going to lose something. He was going to lose his position. 
he was going to lose his place of authority. He was going to lose Rome's favor. That he would be removed from governorship. Truth is, sometimes, sometimes we fear that we may lose something. Or we may have to give something up in order to follow Jesus fully. Sometimes we walk away from truth. Sometimes we ignore the truth. Sometimes we deny the truth because it means it's going to cost me something. If I go all in, but Jesus has a kingdom that is far greater than anything this world has to offer. Jesus has a kingdom that that, that has more and better things. The resurrection shows us that God is going to accomplish His plan regardless of what man thinks or does. That denying its truth does not make it false. Denying, Pilate denying the truth that Jesus was presenting to him and going ahead and giving the order for execution did not make Jesus wrong. It only proved he was right. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Conquering death, conquering this world, conquering everything that that this world had established. Pilate's is a tragic story. Not because Jesus died, but because for Pilate, truth died. Every day, we make decisions. Today, what will you do with Jesus? Father, this morning... We thank you for this story of truth. We thank you for, for the fact that Jesus came and died. Father, that he rose again. That we have hope. That our hope does not lie in this world. Father, I pray this morning if there are any who are struggling with truth, any who are struggling with, with their own life and, and what to do with Jesus. Father, reveal yourself to them. Even yet this morning. Father, do not allow us to leave here the same as we came in. For we have encountered you. And you desire to transform us, to change us. Father, thank you for the power of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Baby, buried in
that His kingdom would come and reside in us, that would live through us through the Holy Spirit. And that one day, even though He resurrected, one day we too have the hope of resurrection. Paul tells the Thessalonians this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Now he used sleep to mean those who had died. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with the hope that we have that Jesus is resurrected, that Jesus is alive. And that we have that hope of living forever, living eternity with Him. Jesus said, you're going to have trouble in this world. You're going to have trouble in this life. He said, but take heart, I have overcome this world. And we can be overcomers with Him. We can be more than overcomers with Him. Amen? Amen. Share that hope. Live that hope this week. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you guys to hang around for a little bit. Uh, the the Waylages are, this is our last Sunday with Kevin and Amy and the girls. And so we want to have a reception for them uh, back in the fireside room. So make sure you touch base with them before you leave. And uh, have a great week. And we'll see you Wednesday night. Living